This podcast is part of the Frederick Podcast Network. Learn more at listenfrederick.com. Welcome to season three of the Big Sci-Fi Podcast with Adina, Brian, Chris, and Steve. The biggest, most fun podcast in the galaxy. This is the Big Sci-Fi Podcast, season three. And welcome to part two of Adina, Chris, and Steve's interview with David Livingston, director extraordinaire of Star Trek. David directed episodes starting with The Next Generation through Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise, directing more Star Trek episodes than any other director in its history. And we were pleased to have him on the show. Hope you enjoy part two of this interview. But before we dive into that, I want to encourage you to subscribe to our YouTube page, join our Facebook group. Make sure you subscribe, like, share, and write a review for our podcast wherever you listen to. That really helps us get the podcast in front of more people. And now, without any further ado, David Livingston, part two. I owe everything to Rick Berman, but he wasn't always quick to give compliments. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, he, 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 comp- he, he talked to me about two episodes that I did where he called me into his office. On The Visitor, he called me in uh, to reprimand me about The Visitor. He, he, he called me into the office. And he says, David, I have to tell you that on The Visitor, you made my wife cry. Oh, great. That's amazing. That was his, that was his compliment. Wow. And, and that was his way of saying, yeah, it was okay. On Shuttlepod 1, which he wrote, yeah. he called me in and, and complimented me on what I had done for the show. Uh, so that, that meant to have the right, not only the executive producer, but have the writer of an episode say, mm-hmm. thank you for what you contributed to that episode. That meant, that meant a lot. That's a big salve to your, to your ego. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, I can't I can't thank you enough. It's the one episode I can watch over and over again because yeah. you just you saw actors acting and it takes a great written script. It takes great directing. It takes great acting to put together that. I mean, there's yeah, there's been other mm-hmm. episodes that you did that are so much fun and interesting. But that one is just like it's a tour de force. And 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 it's and it. And it and those two guys are still the best of friends because of that yeah. episode. I well, think. Well, they have they have their show. Yeah, yeah they were, exactly. And they they surprised me uh, when I did the uh, shuttle pod uh, their podcast that they rehearsed and I didn't even know it. Yeah, yeah they were oh, saying that, which yeah. was great. I I give them kudos. I didn't need. They to be, were ready to go. They, they well, hit the stage so, running, and they had to because they had a lot of dialogue. Well, there was one thing is that I had when I met. Um, when I met Dominic one time and also um, if you do speak to him, tell him all of us wish him the best of health. Oh. Yeah. They, they talk about his injury and we hope him the best of mm-hmm. health. Um, oh. Okay. We'll do. So, so. Um, but again, one of the things was, you know, we, when we, when we talked to um, David Gerald about trouble with dribbles and he said how actors um, improvised, so I had when I met Dominic, I asked him the question, did you improvise the line when you said, does Paul, when does we asked the question, does to Paul have a nice bum? And he said, no, it was written in the script. But when I did met him, he wrote on here on this picture. Yes, she has a nice bum. Nice. I think 
it just it just kudos to how funny those two guys are naturally. And of course, the funniest of them all is the man we interviewed, John Billingsley, without a doubt. Humor. Yeah, he's he is a, a John is a special a special man. He's got mm-hmm. a great, he's got a great sense of humor, and he's got a great heart, and he has a great passion for those things that he that he believes in. Uh, yeah. That's my. Yeah, go ahead. That's okay. So I, oh, I've got one question. I don't think you answered this on Shuttlepod that I've been dying to know. How difficult, or even how was it possible to uh, possible to do the uh, the mashed potato stunt? Because I think it's where Dominique has to like hold the hold the um, the thing, like hold his finger so that over the the, over the hole, yeah, exactly. And then he has to like grab the plate of food, and I'm like, how does how did he do that? I, I don't know, but he, he pulled it off. It was a uh, press to digitation. There were no digital effects in that shot. Yeah, I'm just like, I don't see how that's physically possible. <laughs> I'm, I'm blown away by it. That's yeah, cool he to did know. Well. It's because they practice it. Remember, they practice their, their story. Right, yes. They what they're going to do before mm-hmm. they went into it. So anyway, but again, enough of Shadow Pub. I could talk all day long about it. Well, like, so... Other than just, you know, enterprise going a few more years, what what are, what are, is there anything else that you wish you had the opportunity to do with Trek that you didn't get to do? Uh, it was a gift every time I got to direct. Uh, and I directed so many different uh, kinds of episodes that uh, I couldn't have wished for more. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, one of my friends who was one of the episodic directors, he said, David, he, he was getting burned out on episodic television and on Star Trek particularly. And he says, how do you get up for every episode? And I said, how, how do you not? It, it's a gift to be handed uh, this opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's pl- it was playtime for me. Um, when you're a kid and you're playing with, with so, you know, your soldiers mm-hmm. and you're them around, you're having battles and everything. Same thing when you're directing uh in in this situation except now the key the key difference is those those little figures now have emotions and that makes a big difference mm-hmm. what what could be more fun than that Play yeah time. it sounds like uh it just sounds like the most amazing thing ever honestly like i think like okay being an actor would be cool but the idea of directing a star trek episode like there's nothing better than that to me i i agree with you nothing better and you got to write one too or you're credited with writing the nagus that. Well, let's let's <laughs> let's throw some honesty into the equation. Please, I yeah. I, I pitched maybe forty different story ideas mm-hmm. uh, during my career as a producer, and they bought two stories. Uh, one didn't get produced. It was a story about <laughs> Data and Mrs. Troy. You're talking about Shuttle Pod One. They were captive in a trapped in a shuttle pod. Uh, out in space, lost in space, and it's how they had to deal with one another because they they were you know t- two two opposite personalities mm-hmm. in every way, shape, and form. Especially and, Mrs. Uh, Troy. Oh my uh, God! <laughs> yeah. and, and my story was how do they how do they resolve the situation and survive without killing each other? Mm-hmm. Um, so they bought that, never produced. The other one was I wrote a story about. Quark being some kind of businessman. And the B story was uh, Jake t- teaching Nog how to read. Well, they bought the story based on Jake teaching Nog how to read. I go to the story, uh, it's called Breaking the Story. 
where you sit in the room with the writers, they're all together, they have a big whiteboard and somebody, one of the writers is there writing on the board, the beats and how this how the story is gonna flow. And everybody throws out their ideas and they sketch an outline of what the story is gonna be. And everybody's sitting around discussing, what are we gonna do for Quark? You know, he, David's got this idea about a businessman, but that doesn't really work. We gotta come up with something. What Quark is a businessman. Michael Piller raises his finger and he says, let's do the Godfather. <laughs> and everybody just went, yes, of course, we're going to do the Godfather. And Michael Piller turns over to, uh, turns to Ira and says, Ira, write the Godfather. And that Monday, and this, this was on a Friday, that Monday, I get handed the Godfather. And I couldn't believe it because it's one of my favorite movies, both one and two, three sucks. But one yeah, and, so. and, and they gave me the Godfather and we actually shot the Nagus is the Godfather, and we actually did all these homages to the Godfather. We shot the opening scene of the Godfather in the Nagus, where Quark is, is the Nagus, and <laughs> I had this huge fight with, well, it wasn't a fight, it was an argument with Rick at the production meeting where we talk about the physical aspects of the show. And in the scene where Quark is introduced as the Godfather, um, which is where we meet Brando as the Godfather, Mm -hmm. uh, it's in uh, his office. And in the original Godfather, uh, a lot of the light comes in through these uh, uh, shutter windows in the back of, of Brando. So I said, Rick, I want to put shutters onto the, uh, the porthole uh, of the window behind uh, Quark. And Rick says, we don't have shutters on Star Trek. What are you talking about? And I said, come on, it's, it's the Godfather. And he says, OK, I'll let you have your shutters. But those are the kind of little battles you had to fight, and mm -hmm. uh, it was it was fun. Quark was great. We we uh, Michael Westmore created a toy, one of his puppets, because if you remember in the scene, Brando strokes his cat during that scene, mm -hmm. and Michael Westmore created one of a pencil nose little creature that uh, we had a animated a puppeteer off screen uh, working his controls, and Quark was petting the pet petting the creature. So we had all these uh, homages to, uh, to that's the great. So that's before great. that episode, did they, I mean, did they have a plan for introducing, you know, Grand Nagus Zek and, and Wallace Shawn? Did, was that on the radar? I mean, like, I feel like that introduced the whole, that whole. It all happened when, again, it starts with the word or the uh -huh. spoken word. All Pillar said was, let's do the Godfather. The Godfather. And that everything flowed from that. And we were having a terrible time trying to figure out who's going to be the godfather. And I remember sitting next to Rick Berman in casting, and we were all trying to figure out who's going to be godfather. And Rick Rick just turns to uh, Junie Lauer, the casting director, and said, Wallace Shawn. Well, yeah. Who else but Wallace Shawn? Of course it's Wallace Inconceivable. Shawn. Inconceivable. Inconceivable. Yeah, so great. Yeah. So perfect. I mean, it, it was it was perfect because who else who else could have played him? Oh. He's he's still, I mean he comes across as so delightful. Like he I always I, I really, yeah. You know he's a he's an intellectual. He's a a wonderful rock on tour. He's an a, a playwright. Uh, he's a he's a Renaissance kind of guy. But he's the goofiest person in the world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but then he's funny thing, and he's a little guy. In fact, <laughs> I I normally the episodic directors don't get to go to looping, which is where you replace dialogue. Oh, I've heard about looping production mm -hmm. and. And I normally wouldn't go to looping, but I went to his 
uh, ADR, it's called uh, auto, uh, auto Dialogue Replacement. And I went to that session because, and I went up to uh, uh, Wallace and I said, Wallace, you remember me, I was David, I directed the episode, yeah. I said, but I don't recognize you because I never saw you out of your makeup. I am used to seeing you <laughs> as a Ferengi. But I had never seen him in real life. And in real life, he kind of looks like a Ferengi. Yes. By the way, Adina, your, your comment about Ferengi and how much you love them, mm -hmm. I love them too. And you know why? Mm. Because all of the characters on all the Star Trek movies and television series, what character most resembles the human character today? Mm-hmm. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, without a doubt. Well, and that, there is that whole I can't remember which episode was uh -oh. it in the naked, but there is an episode where where Quark goes on a spiel on how he doesn't understand. You know, humans were just like us at some point, and oh. he goes on that whole spiel, and is I'm like, the, yeah. Is it the um? Oh, what is it? Uh, the Gem Hadar when they go camping, and he has that argument with Cisco where he's like, "Hey, we're actually more evolved because you say you've like you've only something had... like that." Yeah, yes. where he's like, yeah. "We've never had any wars ever in our entire history. Mm -hmm. You guys had slavery. We didn't have slavery." And it's like, "Cork's not wrong." Yeah, yeah, I, like, I'm yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'll admit to my Ferengi uh, lineage. <laughs> I also just wish I could charge people for coming into my home, being like, you know what, you're coming into my home. I'm going to charge you five bucks or whatever, however much you're supposed to charge. And, and you're, you're not that famous yet, Chris. We'll wait. No, okay, you'll have no, not yet. Day. No, that's not going to happen. <laughs> do, do you watch Wallace Shawn on Young Sheldon now? Uh, on no. That show? Okay. Because he's I, I, he is genius on that. He's delightful so, there too. He's, he, so, he, he's the nebbish. He's so sweet. He's so. He's so unlike he was in The Princess Bride. He is just the gentlest little creature. He really but he is. showed up on um, on The Good Wife as like as a sort like kind of not an evil lawyer, but he was always up to stuff. And I'm like, man, like he's so friendly, but he's so intimidating. I'm like, this is what a brilliant way of playing that character. Honestly, Good Wife. It's it's always so cool to watch Good Wife because a lot of uh, Trek actors will show up there as that. with like that. NCIS or any of those shows. Cool. So yeah. let, if you don't mind asking about another episode of Enterprise, I could talk about them all, but another one. <laughs> yeah. Regenerations. Mm, when you were handed yeah. the script for Regenerations. That sounds good. Was the first, did, did, did you think about the film, The Thing, from 1950s, when you had that whole opening sequence and how they're found and the how they come back to life and, you know, the whole thing with the, uh, with the Borgs? Yeah, certainly it's a callback to the thing. I mean, there's there's no new stories. Uh, it's all been done before. But um, yeah, it, it was our version of the thing. Yeah, it was because that they you know when I, I again never knew about it until I saw the episode Cold, and I thought, what a great idea to go back to Star Trek First Contact and say, oh yeah, what happened to the Borg sphere? Where did it end up? Yeah, and then finding it and how they just almost again regenerated where you know at the ending line at the episode where oh, they say well it'll take 200 years, years for this message to get to the delta quadrant we got lots of time it was a beautifully well done episode without really you know so the characters didn't know who these things were when they came to life it was it was really well yeah. well shot and had uh, i i commend you on that one as well yeah that was well, a thank lot you but again it was the writing and i killed uh john billingsley's wife in it Yes, you did. Oh, right. I know John mentioned yeah. that she was one of the uh, one of the researchers on, in the ice. Well, she, was, she was a Borg at that point, so it really didn't count. She was long. <laughs> yeah. But Bonnie, yeah. Bonnie, uh, 
Bonnie Federici uh, died well. Her her, her yeah. character. Her she's alive and well. No, she's still alive and well. We know she's alive because she competed with. Uh, <laughs> with we had, fr- we had friends trivia. A, yeah, friends trivia. Yeah, when we had our episode. Yes, they yes. had fun doing that. So, so speaking of being credited with, uh, you know, some of the the stuff that we've seen, uh, you, we can also credit you with just having Avery Brooks as as Cisco. Is that correct? Uh, I'll take credit for it. In fact, okay. uh, at the <laughs> Avery is a very inscrutable, fascinating human being. Um, very difficult to read. Um, an incredible talent and the depth of his emotion is a little scary. Mm-hmm. I saw him do uh, a one-man show where he plays uh, Paul Robeson and it's it's heartbreaking and yet incredibly moving and his voice, his singing voice is, is so profound but that performance just, it just rips your guts out. He, he's, he's amazing. Um, I, when I was a production manager, uh, I did a movie of the week for Showtime. We did a version of Uncle Tom's Cabin, and Avery played Uncle Tom in it. Oh, wow. And when we, uh, when, when the casting began on Deep Space Nine, um, the word came down that Michael Piller wanted to continue, wanted to consider African-Americans uh, for the role of Commander Sisko. And just immediately, Avery's name popped into my head. I, I couldn't think of anybody else in my experience, both viewing and working with that. And I read the character of Cisco. And to me, the character of Cisco was Avery Brooks, the Avery Brooks that I knew. Mm-hmm. So I said to Junie Lowry, uh, have you guys thought about Avery? And, and, and she said, well, he's on vacation in the, yeah, we thought about him, but he's on vacation in the Bahamas. And I said, well, so what? Yeah, this is a chance. This is a chance for a man who he he does pretty well as an actor and stuff. But this is a chance for a seven-year gig for him. I think he wouldn't mind if you send him the script in the Bahamas mm-hmm. to just see. And she says, "Okay, we'll send him a script." They send him the script. He gets the job. The at the rap party for Deep Space Nine again. Avery's not very inscrutable and not one to say what he said to me. But at the rap party, he came up to me and says, David, I want to thank you uh, for Deep Space Nine. Wow. I, I melted. I, mm-hmm. that was, wow. That's one of the kindest, most generous, beautiful things that an actor has ever said to me, to, to recognize that I had something to do to get him that job. That, that meant so much to me because I was a huge believer in Avery all through the series. Um, and there were questions about whether he was right for the, you know, this part and, and questions and stuff. And yet he's, he's the soul of it. He, mm-hmm. he is Deep Space Nine. It wouldn't have been the show that it was without that, that persona. Mm-hmm. No, no question. Absolutely. No, I don't even want to imagine it without him. It wouldn't have been, the, it wouldn't have been that show. Mm-hmm. You needed that that I'll use a pretentious word gravitas and, and kind of thing that he had, whatever that was. It worked for sure. It worked. Yeah. Yeah. No question about it. Yeah. Did you, and, did you have that kind of um, impact? Like other, were you involved in bringing other folks in to either DS9 or Voyager or, or enterprise? Not, no. Okay. no. I mean, I, I participate in a lot of castings. Mm-hmm. Um, 
On Deep Space Nine, I'll tell you just one story about when you know it's right, though. Mm -hmm. um, we were doing Deep Space Nine casting, and um, we were casting Odo. And Michael Piller said, yeah, Odo's John Wayne. We want John Wayne for this part. Okay. Yeah. So, so uh, this guy, Rene Auberginois, this effete, pretentious, elitist, prissy person walks into the room in full character and proceeds to do Odo exactly as he would do it for seven years in the room. Wow. In the audition. I, I was sitting next to Rick Berman and Rick kicks me under the table <laughs> as soon as Odo starts to talk. Kick, he literally kicked me. And I, and I looked at him, I said, yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. But it was a struggle because we, everybody had to convince Michael Piller that if, if we don't need John Wayne, we need Rene Aubergenois. Mm -hmm. Who else could have played Odo? I mean, it was right. perfect, perfect casting. But writers, everybody gets certain things in their mind. Sure. Hard to shake them out of that, that, that conceit. But thank <laughs> goodness, Michael finally saw the light. And mm -hmm. Rene... Yeah. God bless his soul. I, he was he was something special. Yeah, uh, he yeah. was incredible. Like he's becoming like I would say it's hard because I've always been like Data was my favorite character in Trek. But now, but now Odo is so close because he's so complex and there's a gruffness, but a, a sweetness to him. And like we were talking about the Odo and or sorry, not Odo, Data and um, Troy's mom, but like Odo and her are also a really good combination, like a very good duo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is kind of comes out of nowhere, but it makes sense and it fits well. And well, partly because of that scene, right? Yeah. That, that one the, scene where they are I locked together in the, the, in the elevator. The, yeah, yes, yeah. That was a group. Yeah. That was wonderful. Yeah, well, the the one episode stuff. of DS Nine I absolutely adore because of the subject is "Take Me Out to the Holodeck," mm -hmm. and where there's the scene where Odo's in his room and he's practicing how to oh, be an yeah. empire. Mm -hmm. and it's just so funny. Mm -hmm. Just so funny. He he pulls it off so well. He plays the pretentious umpire perfectly. So yeah, it just showed his his tremendous range as an actor. Mm -hmm. And when he gets into it with Cisco, when Cisco touches him, like when he's getting mad about a call, and then he's like, he starts quoting the rule book. Like, what a perfect scene. So why are we spending so much time talking about Deep Space Nine and Enterprise and a little next generation? And we're not, we haven't mentioned Voyager, I think, yeah, once. We haven't gotten to Voyager yet. That's true. <laughs> Do you <laughs> <laughs> do you spend, I feel like, you know, David, I feel like you do spend a lot of time probably talking about the same episodes on Deep Space Nine, the same episodes on Enterprise. What about Voyager? Why aren't we talking about Voyager as much? Well, I, I think I directed uh, the most of yeah. Voyager than, than the other series. Right. It was like 26, did you do? I think I've, I was trying to look at the yeah, count. There I was. Don't, I don't know the number, but I, I directed a lot of them and and I uh, I, I love doing the show. Um uh, mm -hmm. Kate was what Kate and I had our our uh, differences, um, but the work uh, at the end of the series, she called me into her dressing room uh, my last day of shooting, and she says, "David, I know we've had our differences, and uh, but I just want to tell you that the work was always good." And again, that was a great compliment, especially coming from mm -hmm. Kate, because she's she's tough. Kate mm -hmm. is a she she is Janeway. That, that unlike Genevieve Bujold, uh, Kate was right. typecast. 
Mm -hmm. uh, and she's tough and demanding and does not continence fools and you can't pull anything over her eyes so if you had if you tried to pull any tricks on her or anything man you paid dearly for it um so uh she was a great a great leader and uh uh we we did some great i think we did some terrific work together yeah well, i mean we did we did discuss equinox quite a quite a lot in one of our episodes mm -hmm. didn't we remember yeah we, yeah we, we talked about yeah. equinox yeah. which like so what's that like when you're I shouldn't even have to phrase the question because I feel like Voyager gets quite or a little bit beat up. What was what was that experience like um, filming Equinox? Because that was like a very intense episode, especially a part two. Mm -hmm. Where Janeway was, really goes crazy. Yeah, Whoa. that's the one where I'm like, okay, Janeway, I love <laughs> yeah, Jane, you. Yeah, Janeway's like, little... I'm out for blood. I want revenge. I want him dead, you know? That That's with uh, Ransom in it, right? The, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, with Ransom. Yeah, uh, Academy Award winning actor. I got to do both parts of that the season closing you opening again yeah it's great you have a renegade uh which is unusual you have a renegade uh, uh starfleet captain so I, yeah. I don't know well and and that's a, that's another question you you got to shoot both ends of those episode one and episode two you directed both of those when you are given like okay i'm getting back to enterprise but there was some three arc episodes in three episode arc episodes in enterprise but you only directed one of the three was it hard working with or did you have to sit down with the other directors and keep continuity with the way you were going to direct something well no if you did the first one it's not an issue uh if you did the second or as you said the third one um you wanted to see what occurred but you have to go with your own gut um okay. and and interpret the material uh, as you see, as you see fit. So, um, and you, you, read, you know, you read, you not only look at the episode, you read the previous episodes as well to make sure you've got the arc down. Yeah. That doesn't seem intuitive. Like to, if you have a two-part episode, that does not seem intuitive to me to make the decision that we're going to have a different director for each part. Well, but, but, by, but by nature, in between seasons, you can have the same director, mm -hmm. but Generally, you can't have the same director unless you shoot it back to back. For in episodic television, it's alternate. It, it's alternating. You can't have the same director do the first one. Oh, the I get you. So, mm -hmm. so when I did, um, uh, let's see, uh, I did an episode called uh, uh, "The Killing Game." Um, oh yeah, yeah. I did "The Killing Game" part one. Another director came in and did part two because that was the next episode shot i couldn't do the second episode because they were prepping it while i was shooting mm -hmm. uh, so generally yeah. that's the case now i guess today things are different and mm -hmm. and you could have a director prepare uh two hours back to back and then shoot mm -hmm. them as as one piece uh but that was not the case on star trek you always had uh a, you could only do one episode at a time unless it was season ending and then you didn't have right then you easily you could you know go to the yeah. next one so you're um, saying that if oh yeah sorry go ahead no i was gonna i was gonna ask the question which was we have all these new episodes the new series of star trek series you know now you, you've got picard and you've got strange new worlds and you've got discovery have they ever approached you and said hey hey what you doing david you're bored would you like to direct one of our new series 
episodes. No, but if you'd like to contact them and let them know that I'm available. Yeah. Like, can we make that happen? Can we call someone? Because I feel like that'd be great. Like David Livingston, come on. They want, they they should get you. Jonathan Frank's directed, uh, you know, he directed mm-hmm. episode or two of uh, of Picard. I'm going, why, why not David? You know, he's Jonathan Frakes. Uh, <laughs> I, I uh, when Brandon was on Orville, uh, he got me an interview with Seth, but Seth wouldn't hire me. What? Okay, you've got well, a body of you... work that says so much about. Your Doesn't ability matter. to make science fiction episodic TV. If you got the call tomorrow, would you like go? Yeah, I could do it, or do I you, would do it. What do you think, Steve? The oh. answer is yes, of course. Let's make it happen. So you, wait, you just you just said it doesn't. The body of work doesn't matter. So what? What wouldn't? What does matter? Like, well, if, if I was forty five years old, no. I'm seventy three. So okay. there's ageism. Mm-hmm. There's uh, there's the fact that it's in the past. I mean, that's mm-hmm. 20, 20 mm-hmm. years ago. Mm-hmm. But he's also a big Trekkie, like the Orville's inspired by TNG. Uh, I did, mean, he did hire, yeah. he did hire some uh, Star Trek directors. He hired Jim Conway, who directed the pilot uh, uh, for Enterprise, as well as uh, a lot of other Star Trek shows. And he hired Frakes. And I'm not sure if he hired anybody else uh, from the original Star or some of the Star Trek directors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do, do you watch any of the new shows? I do not. Okay. Yeah, I was, I'm curious, you know, would if you were watching it, would you would it be with that kind of eye of I was a director, so I have these uh, thoughts versus are you would you be watching it as a fan? But if you're not watching it at all, then yeah. Yeah. I watch uh, other stuff. <laughs> it, you know, it's funny. It's it's funny you said it because when we interviewed uh Doug Drexler and we asked him the same mm-hmm. question, oh Doug, yeah. do you watch the new series? He goes, No, we go in. He goes, because I'm not involved in it. Yeah, it doesn't interest me. Yeah, again, uh, that's that's true for me. Uh, I'm, I think, as I said originally, I I wasn't a big uh, Star Trek fan in my teens, but the fact that I worked on the show, I am forever grateful. That mm-hmm. I could not have worked on any other television show that I can think of where I would have been given uh, the kind of opportunities. Uh, that I was given on Star Trek to do so many different things visually and dramatically and to direct so many different kinds of, of material. So, and the residuals, mm-hmm. it's the gift that keeps on giving. Mm-hmm. There, yeah. If any other show where I get these presents from the Directors Guild uh, every quarter uh, that helps me pay my mortgage. So I, again, I am forever grateful um, to this to the star trek uh, legacy even though i don't necessarily am a fan of of the of the show itself mm-hmm. oh and i so, just want to let you know i was a big fan of the man from uncle as well i grew up in Ilya that the, that, oh they were the coolest two dudes on television absolutely and i don't I, think i've ever seen it it's a great I've, show i it's, hate to see oh go ahead chris i've only seen the uh the mod the, the the remake with um what's his name superman henry cavill and i was no. like okay i enjoyed it but i've never yeah. seen the, no. the original no, you have to, you have to watch the original series growing was, up as a kid in the 80s yeah. it was not you know what was on syndication no. star trek what did my, my dad have on in the background when i was a kid just playing in the room he had yeah. star trek on so i wish i was like that because i just felt like 
I mean, my parents don't seem to be upset about it, but it's like it wasn't my parents that had the TV that had Star Trek on. It's like I had it on and they were forced to listen to it. Same with my grandparents. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I, I put them through way too many hours of Trek. <laughs> too awesome. many. Yeah, it, it, it's there, there, there was a lot. Uh, I guess it's the one thing that you and I both have because I'm 66 uh, is that we grew up in a period of time where we watched science fiction on television evolved not going back to the 50s where it was you were endorsing um product in all the episodes but it was we got to see into the 60s twilight zone outer limits star trek you know there and and man and all these other series like that like man from uncle that allowed us to be able to shape our opinions you know and and do you think that that helped to influence you as a, as a director, all your experience of watching different movies and shows and things like that? Well, you brought up The Outer Limits and Twilight Zone. I, I lived and died for those shows, especially mm-hmm. The Twilight Zone. Rod Serling was an unbelievable writer. And, yeah. and those shows were so impactful uh, for me as a, as a, as a young teen. Um, and I'm also a huge Alfred Hitchcock fan. And the Alfred Hitchcock Hour uh, and oh, half yes. Of, oh, my gosh. Yes. One of my dearest friends. I don't know if you know his name. His name is Norman Lloyd. Um, he was a, uh, a producer, director and actor on the original Hitchcock shows. And uh, he lived to be 106 years old. And it uh, to have a connection to Hitchcock through my friend Norman Lloyd w- was was incredible that I could, uh, you know, six degrees of separation. It was it was quite phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that yeah. was that, that anthology show, the Alfred Hitchcock show, was was remarkable, remarkable. And, that, and that's another thing. The best thing about '60s television was anthology, um, mm-hmm. where every week it was different. So if you didn't have the time to follow characters on a week to week basis, you could go in and get it all in that one week. And then anthology did come back and has come back as well. Um, but Twilight Zone and Hitchcock, those were those were my two favorite shows, and also The Outer Limits. Those yeah, I, 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 I've been watching, rewatching the Twilight Zone on uh, Prime Ticket, you know, Prime Video, uh, and it's just, it's just you go, what they did for a half hour was remarkable. Oh, remarkable. Twilight Zone was was good, but it's like it's one of those shows where like some of the episodes I just like once I watch them I keep thinking about them and they're creepy. Like, um, uh, what's the like all of say, them? Like all of them, but like specifically the one with uh, the kid that's the monster and he's like making people disappear. Like that one's just like, ooh, it gives me the willies where I'm like, I'm so glad that like TOS had their version where it's like, okay, in that episode, Captain Kirk was able to stand up to Charlie, but like Uh everybody in... In Twilight Zone, like, oof. I like the willies. From Lost in Space. And how about Shatner with the uh, gremlin? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Yep, iconic. My favorite mm-hmm. Twilight Zone, though, is the one where uh, this family builds a bomb shelter, and yes. that one. And then there's a there's a there's an impending nuclear attack, and all of the neighbors want to come into the bomb shelter that this family has built, and the guy won't let them in. And then there's no, then there it's proved that there's not going to be an attack, and it's how do these neighbors all live with one another? Yeah. Because they just saw their worst. That and you know, the other one was the uh, the monsters are on Maple Street, where they set up the image of their you know of, of who's the alien in the neighborhood. Okay, and it turns out that's an example of 
who is the person you don't trust amongst your friends? Exactly. You know? wow. Yeah. And, and the yeah. one about the, uh, the, the bomb shelter in the eighth grade, it was actually, we actually read it as a short story. It was anthologized. Oh, wow. So that showed you the impact of a television show, mm-hmm. the modern literature, but you're right about the show you're talking about as well. Again, yeah. all, this is Rod Serling and, and his uh, brilliant writing and his, and his writers. Again, it all, it all starts. I wanted to be a writer. I'm not a writer. I recognize that. I have great respect for them. You should have a, all, all the writers on the show. We, we have great respect for our, our good friend, Adina and her yeah, book. Yeah. A very old <laughs> writer. Exactly. I, I agree I, with four in the works. You, 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 her, her books are, are, are delight. And I can't wait to see what happens to Ruby in book number three. Once I get started <laughs> well, thank, on it. Thank you. Good for you. Yeah. Yep. This is, you know, and, you know, I was inspired by mostly short fiction, you know, anthologies, short fiction, mostly by Asimov, Twilight Zone, those kinds of things is what I started out. I thought I wanted to write short fiction, and then I learned I can write a novel. So I've done it a few times. (laughs) Steve, Steve, did you ever see uh, Ray Bradbury uh, taking a bus around town and riding his bike and stuff? No, but actually, I went to see a stage production of the Martian Chronicles at a little theater on Riverside Drive near Dodger Stadium. I can't remember the theater. And we were in there and everybody's all going all abuzz going, you know, who's here tonight? Who's here tonight? Ray Bradbury's here tonight. And they go, come on, Steve, don't you want to get his autograph? And I said, no. And they said, you're crazy. So I I refused. And I went up and I said, well, we're going to go to, you know, I'm going to go to the second act. I'm going to go use the restroom and who's standing there, Ray Bradbury. And I walked up and I said, Mr. Bradbury, I have a question for you. And he said, what's that? And I said, when you write a novel, do you do an outline or do you just start typing? He said, I just start typing. I said, thank you. I didn't want his autograph. I didn't want, you know, it's well, we didn't cameras to have around that time. There's 1970 something, but just to meet him and to ask him a question was, and uh, one that had always burned in my mind as to a great writer, how he gets started. That was really cool. That, that, is, that is very cool. Um, f- and for a futurist, the guy didn't have a car. Really? <laughs> he, would, he, 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 he didn't believe in all this mechanized stuff and stuff. He was, I used to see him around town and uh, walking and stuff. But you brought up a thing about writers and stuff and, and meeting famous people. You know, we, we, as you guys probably know, and some of the fans, um, we had Stephen Hawking on the show. And I got to meet Stephen Hawking. Oh, wow. How cool, yeah. how cool was that? That was amazing, that episode. Oh, my yeah. God. Yes. Yeah, the, the card game. He, oh, what a uh, brilliant idea. He, he, yeah, it was. He had the greatest sense of humor. And he told a joke when we were all standing around him. Uh, and it took him about two minutes to do the setup of the joke. And then we're all waiting. And then for the punchline, and then it takes him like another 30 seconds to deliver the punchline. But it was hilarious. And everybody mm-hmm. cracked up. But it took him about three minutes to do it because he's blowing into this tube, trying, you know, trying to spelling out each word, every letter of the. But, but we we got it, and it was hilarious. Yeah, he was like this little gnomish guy, and it was horrible to just see him sitting in this thing all racked with AL, ALS. Is it? Mm-hmm. It was horrible to see this incredible mind trapped in this body. But to be able to be in the same room as Stephen Hawking and yeah. to have him actually communicate with you. That rivals you getting to pee next to Ray Bradbury. 
<laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, when we, when my wife and I went to London in 2019, I had to go seek out where he was entombed in London uh, just to pay my respects because, you know, my mother, she had a stroke and she was paralyzed on half of her body and she used to complain and whine about it. And I said, you know, mom, you're here complaining about being this. And Stephen, Stephen Hawking did his best work when he could barely bat his eye. Mm -hmm. So why are you complaining? And she realized that's true. Look at that, what he accomplished afterwards. Yeah. 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 Oh, I'm just oh. jealous that you got to meet him. That And that, that little scene, I remember that scene, the poker scene, that was, that was wonderful. Oh, so good. Yeah. Watching him on that. Big Bang Theory. So I'm a Big Bang Theory and then Young Sheldon fan too. So seeing, seeing several of the Star Trek actors show up there, seeing some of the scientists. So my, my degree was in physics uh, and I work in aerospace. So seeing several of the scientists and the Big Bang Theory is like always exciting. And uh, I'm very jealous that you got to meet. Stephen Hawking. Yeah, we're having some scientists on uh, Trek Talks too, mm -hmm. so uh, stay tuned. Excellent, excellent. We're talk about yeah. science fiction to science fact, and that's that's some of the things that I write and talk about too, because mm -hmm. I, I I care very deeply about trying to get the next generation of kids interested in science, and I like to use science fiction as a as a way to kind of generate the interest in science. You know, like if you see something in science fiction, is that real or not? Or could that be real or not? And and use it because uh, that's kind of, you know, Star Wars and Star Trek brought me in that way. And that's why I try to motivate the next generation to do the same thing because we need, we're desperate for people to come into the sciences right now. You're you're part of a, of a community. There are several other uh, scientists, uh, astrophysicists, mm -hmm. whatever, that uh, got their inspiration from Star Trek. Right. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I, that, that's a pretty amazing. Uh, yep. Uh, well, I saw I saw Shatner on stage at the Star Trek convention. He talked about how when he was filming the movie, the the captains that he had to go fly internationally. And so he contacted the president of Bombardier Air Aircraft and said, hey, can I commission one of your planes? And like he said, sure. He says, what's going to cost you? He said, nothing. He said, I'm not going to charge you. And Shatner said, why? He said, because Star Trek inspired me to get into aerospace. I built this company because of you. This is my way of saying thank you. So, I mean, that's the beauty of Star Trek. It's always inspired people to become greater than they are. And that's mm -hmm. the beauty of it. Yeah. yeah. Not, not only in the scientific community, but look at somebody like Whoopi Goldberg, mm -hmm. who, who actually solicited us to appear on the show as a give back to what Michelle inspired to her as a young child. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. that, that is an extraordinary accomplishment for a television show. 100%. So is, is the part of that where it effectively helps save the show, is that part true? You mean that Whippy came on board? Yeah. No, yeah. I don't. So, okay, because yeah. I feel like I had read somewhere and I was like, I, I couldn't tell if this was true. And I mean, yes, uh, you know, the fact that she asked to come on. But um, I think there I've read and it seemed like a rumor where that, you know, Star Trek after the first year wasn't wasn't guaranteed to continue on and that she had her involvement in helped helped it make sure it continued. Well, I'm sure it didn't hurt, but but uh, Next Generation was going to go seven years. So that was okay. uh, every year. Uh, every year I had to prepare the budget, the, the new pattern budget for that season. Mm -hmm. Every year I asked for more money. Every year Paramount gave 
gave us exactly what we wanted. Wow. We didn't have any studio involvement. We were the first hour episodic television show uh, to go syndication. We set a whole new paradigm for the business. We had no studio. We had very little studio involvement. I would say none. And we didn't have to deal with the network. So we had total freedom to do whatever we wanted. Paramount had a cash cow. They knew they had it. They weren't going to let the thing go for mm -hmm. Uh, they were going to make sure it went seven years. And the only reason it didn't go the eight, the extra eighth season, which the cast agreed that they would do, even though they were only contractually uh, obligated for seven years, was that the feature division said, no, we want to do a feature film. And in the studio system, the feature department overrules the television department. So we had to shut down after seven seasons. Wow. I did, don't think I knew... I don't that's think I knew any of that. No, no, that's all news. That's news to us. Yeah, folks. yeah me too. You got we, an exclusive we, we here on the big sci-fi podcast. We would have gone an eighth season. Every year, this, the, the ratings increased on, on The Next Generation. The eighth or the seventh season was the highest rating ever. And we got nominated for Best, uh, uh, best Dramatic Show. Uh, so... Which doesn't happen that often for sci-fi shows to get nominated for an Emmy. Were there scripts and ideas for, for season eight? I don't know. Okay. Um, oh, but cool. but uh, the, the, the preparation for the feature was well underway uh, <laughs> while we were still doing uh, season seven. Okay. Rick, Rick asked me to, to uh, work on the, on the feature uh, as the line producer, but I, I I didn't want to do it. Okay. Oh, really? And why? Why was that? I didn't want to. I didn't want to jeopardize my directing career. I wanted. To, I wanted to have him keep giving me directing jobs. Gotcha. Well, you sure did between DS Nine <laughs> and uh, Voyager, and then into Enterprise. You, uh, you kept working, and that's great, and we appreciate it. So do I. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I just hope. I just hope Paramount picks up the phone and gives you a call <laughs> one day. I'll cross my fingers. Well, 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 maybe maybe someone is watching right now or will be listening to this episode and going, you know, that David guy, he was pretty easy guy to work with. You know, maybe he might want it. That's not necessarily true. I wasn't that easy to work with. That, that, that was one of my, you know, <laughs> Rick, Rick would call me in his office and he said, David, the, the studio hates you. The actors hate you. Uh, the production staff hates you. The writers hate you. But I like you. And that's that's all that mattered. They always used to say, if, if if people don't like you, you must be doing things right. Well, I <laughs> I'm like a junkyard dog. I I would not let go a lot of times. And um, ep in episodic, you have to you have to answer to a lot of chefs. And uh, I I didn't always do that. I'm I I can be a little bit contrarian. I I almost. <laughs> I came into work one day, this is 15 years ago, with a resignation letter. And the reason for that resignation letter was because I was reporting to four, like I was getting, taking direction from four different people and I couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> yeah, not fun. No, you got to no. answer to one person in life. Yep. Wow. At a time. <laughs> well, no, I mean, ultimately you have to answer yourself. Well, okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, still one person at a time. <laughs> yeah. And if you respect your boss, then you can follow their lead. And yeah. I followed yep. I followed Rick's lead. Rick Rick Rick's taken a lot of static over the years about his leadership of the shows, mm -hmm. and it's and it's in my humble opinion totally unwarranted. Mm -hmm. Here's a man that launched 
well, he, he helped launch The Next Generation and then three other television shows mm-hmm. and four feature films. Yeah. That's an extraordinary accomplishment. Mm-hmm. I and agree. It, and, it's, and, it's unrecon- and, it's, and it's not appreciated. I, yeah, I'm always surprised at like how much of like criticism he gets. And I get like, yeah, maybe there's an episode here and there that people don't love. But yeah, without well, Rick Berman, I don't, would we be still talking about Star Trek? Like, where would, where would we be without that? That's yeah, I, uh, I agree. Your thought. I agree. Yeah, I don't know. But it's, yeah, absolutely um, a team effort. And I, I think I like one of the other comments that I think I saw, I read in another interview uh, where you talked about one of your contributions to Trek being hiring Michael Westmore. And I love that comment because it's kind of like that whole, you know, showing that this is a, a team effort. It, it takes all the creative types and everyone to bring this and, and put this together. Well, again, to correct the historical record, Michael Westmore has a slightly different take on that. Okay. Um. He claims that he called me <laughs> and asked if he could interview for the job. Mm-hmm. And I will accept that. I have, I've always thought that I, I, I've always thought that I went to Bob Justman and said, what about Michael Westmore? Well, I did do that, but it was after Michael Westmore called me. And okay. at that point, Michael Westmore was an Academy Award winning makeup artist. Mm-hmm. But Michael, but the reason he won the Academy Award because of his work on prosthesis makeup. And that's exactly what we needed. And Michael Westmore is, is brilliant, is brilliant. All the, the different makeups that he came up with are extraordinary. And I mm-hmm. said, how do you do that, Michael? And I was in the makeup room one day in his office and he showed me his bookshelf and they were all of these weird uh, creatures, uh, salamanders and sea creatures and lizards and all that kind of stuff. And he go through and, and look at all these different kind of real life creatures and, and get inspiration of, from those mm-hmm. for his makeups. But yes, that's, uh, that was one of my uh, great calls. I'll take credit for it. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> we're happy to give you that credit. You know, yeah, and, and it's interesting that, you know, that, that how many certain people technically stayed on through all the series, you know, Mike and Denise Okuda, you see them through every up every season of all the, the four different Star Trek series, the same thing you see uh, Doug Drexler involved in all of them. And, and I'm sure did, you know, did you with this continuity from se- from a series to series and seeing these same people coming back again? Did that make it easier for you to do your job? Of course, because everybody, the show ran on automatic. The reason that I quit as a producer is I was bored. Um, I, I didn't have anything to do because every everybody knew their jobs. It was all by rote. Um, mm-hmm. And we had this incredible group of, of artists that, they didn't need any. They didn't need any guidance. They knew exactly what they had to do. Uh, the Okudas are, and and today I still have friendships with them. The Okudas are are dear friends of ours. And mm-hmm. uh, Herman Zimmerman went through the whole thing and the features and the TV shows. A, b- a bunch of people. You mentioned Doug Drexler. Yeah. Uh, okay. Tons of people. Uh, yeah. Marvin it- Rush. Uh, that's another thing I'll take some credit for is getting Marvin Rush on the show as a director of photography who came in on the third year of, of the next generation and ended up all the way through enterprise mm-hmm. alternating with Jonathan West on various show on various shows. Yeah. Um, so, that, I think that's the beauty of why all the four series work so well is because there was this true continuity with the people above the line 
and as you say, people below the line that made things happen. Yeah, yeah, it didn't hurt, but we had incredible, incredibly talented people. You could have had a bunch of, you know, lummoxes and, uh, you know, and and continuity wouldn't have mattered a whit. Mm-hmm. But the the number of uh, craft and technical Emmys that the show was not only nominated for but that we won is testament to uh, the craft's creativity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Again, they made they made my job easy because they were so extraordinarily talented and also responsible to uh, the financial uh, limitations of the show yeah. and, and the time constraints. Do you guys you one of the things people don't understand is that Star Trek had to create everything every seven or eight days out of whole cloth. It wasn't like you could go to a house in Encino and shoot the interior of somebody's living room and 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 shoot seven pages there that day no you had to you had to build something that looked like it belonged in another century yeah everything everything had to be created the the costumes the makeup uh the sets all of the physical elements of the show don't exist in our reality unless we do a time travel show Mm -hmm. yeah we we interviewed people that had to come up with this every single yeah that's it's amazing. Crazy amount yeah. of amazing accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Well, we interviewed we interviewed Mike Moore, who mm-hmm. does prop production, and how he had he was told like, okay, we want these pulse rifle rifles made, and how he said, yo, I need them tomorrow. Yeah, and then yeah. Each of them make another dozen of them for Monday. You know, yeah. it, it is to have be able to have to be able to rely upon people like that who could do that work for you and get it done just must have made your life a lot less of a living hell. Well, it was, it was never a living hell. (laughs) Dan Curry, who was the visual effects supervisor uh, and alternated with Rob Legato, multi Academy award winning uh, uh, visual effects supervisor. But Dan Curry, not only did visual effects, he also designed a lot of the props as you were talking about, like the Batleth and, and all of this weaponry. And just to give you an example of the background these people come from, Dan spent a lot of time in the uh, um, in uh, uh, Thailand and in in that area, claiming that he was working with NGOs. But I really think he was in the CIA, which he will not admit to publicly. <laughs> During that time, he he learned about all these uh, uh, martial art weaponry, and he bought brought that knowledge back to Star Trek and designed a lot of the weaponry that you see based upon his real life experience. So again, it's these artists drawing on their personal experience and putting it in uh, to the designs for uh, use on the show. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very cool. So we're closing in on our time for today. So I wanna first say, um, David, do you have any final thoughts you wanna share with us about anything? No, I'm just, um, uh, thank you for having me. It's, uh, uh, it's, It's a lot of fun to do these because I didn't do these for, for many years. And my wife said, they're asking you might, you know, you might have fun in doing it. And it's been terrific because I've reconnected with people that I've not seen in decades. I've gone to uh, a couple of, con- uh, several conventions. I did Las Vegas again this year. Um, it's so wonderful to reconnect with these people that we had this commonality of experience and created something that meant so much to so many people. That is mm-hmm. so, so gratifying mm-hmm. to have people say that they were emotionally affected by what happened. Um, 
that that that's for for an artist and and as a creator and as a director to have that kind of feedback is is worth all the resi- well not worth all the residuals in the world mm. but it certainly it, it certainly is is impactful for somebody and and I'm so grateful to to have that opportunity and to have people like you that that are inspired by the the show today and at being accomplished as you are as individuals and yet we can all come together and say oh we have this commonality of experience about star trek and what it means to us that is that's a very cool community to belong to and i'm mm-hmm. glad that i have reconnected with it so again that's I'm awesome. that you were well, willing to have me on your well no no we we are grateful and graciously oh, definitely appreciative of having you spend time because we're just we're just three. Well, I wish our, our fourth member of the band was here. Um, we're just three people who love science fiction. And to have a chance to talk to someone about the nuts and bolts of it, mm-hmm. because people don't realize when they walk into a movie theater or when they, they turn on the TV and they watch an episode of what it takes to do that. It's not just it's it's like saying, okay, I'm watching an auto race and there's the guy behind the wheel, but they don't know that it was a multitude of people that got him behind the wheel to drive that car. And so when we get someone like yourself on, it is we're we're honored. We're honored to have you come and talk to our little our little friendly get togethers. Well, thank you. Anybody in professions all around the world. It's not just one person. Mm-hmm. And in show business, it is it is good to to pull back the curtain a little bit so that people can can get that it's a, that it takes a, a community of of players to to pull all this together and incredibly talented people. That's that's the one yeah. thing that I'm so grateful for to be involved with all these wonderful artists all you know climbing the mountain together. Uh, mm-hmm. That 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 was a a wonderful wonderful experience for me. Thank awesome. You. Chris, yeah, did you have any you. final thoughts you want to add? Just that I'm uh, I'm still like, <laughs> we're talking to David Livingston, like this is not going to go away for a long time, where this is wild, because you talk about like pulling the curtain back, like as a kid, I was just so fascinated by, okay, well, I watch Star Trek, and I see the characters on TV. But then I would start watching the special features, and I would see your name pop up, I'd see your interviews, and I'd be like, wow, this is actually, there's like so much work that goes into mm-hmm. to making mm-hmm. these shows. Yep. And yeah, I'm I'm grateful to learn more of the nuts and bolts too, because it is it is yeah. really fascinating, yeah. you know, uh, watching how does it all come together. So with that, I'm gonna mm-hmm. say that my name's Adina, and this has been such a fantastic discussion. And David, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I know it's a it's a big deal to take time uh, out of anyone's day these days, and so thank you so much. And we all have January 14th. Oh, 2023 yeah. blocked off on our calendars to listen mm-hmm. to Trek Talks 2. And I'm super excited for the, for that event. I'm going to be sitting in front of my computer the whole day. And so to our listeners, as always, we'd love to hear your thoughts about science and your and science fiction or anything else with your favorite science fiction. So join us at the Big Sci-Fi Podcast Facebook group to share your thoughts and comments on this episode, or send us an email at the Big Sci-Fi Podcast at gmail.com. And I would like to thank all of our Facebook listeners and members of our Facebook group for being such awesome supporters of the show. You are the reason we keep getting together via Zoom to record these episodes weekly. Until next week, stay well, and we look forward to going with you where few podcasters have gone before. 